Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight's a particularly auspicious night to give a Dharma talk for a few different reasons. First of all, it's a full moon, which in Buddhist tradition is a symbol for enlightenment, for freedom. The Buddha was enlightened, it said, on the full moon. And it represents the kind of clear reflection, clear mirror of reality, clarity of seeing. It's also uh, coming up on the Jewish holiday of Passover, which is one of connection with the faith and devotion to God and the, the results that that brings of salvation, And tonight is the start of the Easter weekend, which is a renewal of faith and spiritual journey. Tonight is Good Friday. So it's nice to be sharing all of that with you tonight. All of those kind of point to a faith in the spiritual journey. On the second day of a retreat, it might be kind of difficult to get in touch with that faith. So you might be trying to muster it up and say, okay, I'm here, let's get on with it. But it's not so easy. You're told to pay attention, not judge what's happening, which is hard enough to do when you're eating the raisin for the eating meditation or outside in the world being at a good concert without the mind wandering off. But when what you look at and see is pain in the knee and wandering mind and all sorts of difficult states and experiences, it's that much harder to pay attention. Sleepiness, restlessness, aversion. So the question, what am I doing here? Or why am I here? is very common on the second day. Sometimes people think, okay, I got through the first day, that was hard, now it's going to get a bit easier. But sometimes it works the other way and there's a little cycle at the beginning of a retreat, this settling in period. So what I'd like to talk tonight on is one important aspect of this process that we're undertaking and through the talk, offer some perhaps helpful attitudes to keep in mind while we're going through this process together. The retreat experience, the first part of this time together, the first step is one of opening to our experience. Usually, we contract around experience or close around it. Even for the pleasant things, the tendency is to grab hold, take it in. One meditation teacher said, 
it seems like we're all looking for the big nipple in the sky. Somehow we can grab on and then feel secure. You look at a baby and just uh, touch its palm. It grasps. Just looking at Caroline in the last few days, she just wants to take everything in, usually through the mouth. More, more, let me take it in. With the unpleasant, equally the response is that of closing. But rather than closing to take something in, it's closing to keep things away. Somehow we feel that the way to protect ourselves is to contract from experience. And it doesn't really work because that resistance to the unpleasant things just creates more suffering. Have you noticed when there's a pain in the knee and you say, gee, I wish this was gone. When is it going to go away? It doesn't really help things. Or when there's confusion in the mind or fear or anger, trying to get away from it, it's very fast. It follows us just as as fast as we try to run away. So really, this part of the retreat is one of starting to learn to open up to those various things that we normally respond to by closing. As we can learn to open and accept, then we can start to deal more skillfully with these different situations rather than be confused or lost in them. And we don't spend as much energy running away, which is the thing that probably exhausts us more than anything. How do I get away from it? And as we can... Can people hear in the back? No? How about now? Can you hear? As we're not running away from experience, we can rather get into more harmony with what's unfolding and just allow it in its natural rhythm to be our lives. And so out of this first process of opening, we can settle into what's happening And from that kind of perspective, then really look carefully so we can explore the different principles of life and what it means to have a mind and a body and start to understand and develop more wisdom and compassion. But first, this quality of openness, that's the real challenge, especially this part of the retreat. first aspect of this opening, I'd like to talk about a few different parts that comprise the opening, at least that have come to me. There are probably more that might come to you. But the first thing seems to be a willingness to be here for experience. And it takes some courage. It's not so easy, as I said, to look at all the things that come up on the first few days. Just thinking about tonight being Good Friday, 
thinking about Jesus in his last act on earth, willing to open to that suffering and not be lost in fear or confusion, although there might have been moments of that, but in the end, the surrender to it, that's the kind of direction that we can we can work towards opening to the suffering that's here. I think Jack will talk more about courage later on, so I won't talk too much about it now. But it does take a kind of determination in saying, okay, this is happening. Let me take a look. From that first step of willingness, then there are some other qualities that can help in this process. One is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the antidote to the complaining mind. The mind that says, why does it have to be this way? It's the first step to ending that battle with the experience. And when I talk about forgiveness, I don't mean a kind of condescending allowing that it's here, although in the back of your mind, you know, if you were running the show, you'd do a better job. But really, an acceptance of the way things are, a genuine acceptance And from that stance, it's not just tolerating what's here, but rather embracing it, opening up to it, exploring it, an active kind of permission for things to be the way they are. And the forgiveness starts with ourselves. And that's where we begin on the cushion. There's nobody else around. It's just my mind, my body, my meditation, my retreat. It's hard for most people to forgive themselves when they're not doing it as good as they'd like to. Many people have that perfectionist streak in them. I've seen it in myself a lot. And certainly... Uh, It's been something that's come up a lot in my practice over the years. I'm a little bit kinder with it now than I used to be. A few years ago, it occurred to me that being a perfectionist, you can only break even. It's the best you can do. Uh, You do it perfectly. Okay, I did that one perfectly, but what about the next one? And if there's anything less than perfect, you've blown it. And there you are beating yourself up. So that doesn't help so much. There's a beautiful line in the Third Zen Patriarch that has been very inspiring to me. It says, to live in this realization, to live with the truth, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. You get a sense of what that's like to let go of being perfect and to just be who you are. It's really putting down a lot of extra baggage. To be able to forgive ourselves means to let ourselves make mistakes. 
because we're going to make mistakes. We don't know it all. Nobody knows it all. So how can you learn? By taking the risk and exploring, trying new ways, trying new things. And then when you don't do it the best way, you might find another way. When I was a kid, I used to be amazed at how my father could get us from Queens to Brooklyn uh, to visit our grand- my grandmother you know, and know the way. I was a little kid. I said, boy, I'll never be able to do that. You know, it's t- so confusing, so many highways. And he said, sure you will. You'll go. You'll try to get there the right way. You might get lost. And then you'll ask somebody and they'll tell you how to get there. And it hadn't occurred to me, oh, it's okay to get lost. It was really an important lesson for me. To let ourselves make mistakes on the cushion. Suppose you're feeling a lot of energy and it's late at night. You say, well, I better not do it. I better not stay up and practice because tomorrow I might be sorry. And so you kind of plan ahead and try to keep it safe. Who knows how you'll feel tomorrow? Why not go for it and see? And then if you feel really tired, so you'll take a a nap the next day. Or to just explore what your limits are with dealing with the physical sensations. Just to make it a kind of adventure. There's a beautiful passage that is sometimes read on these retreats about making mistakes that I want to share since a lot of people probably haven't heard it before. This is by an 85-year-old woman named Nadine Stair. She says, If I had my life to live over, I'd like to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I would limber up. I'd be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. (laughs) If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. How willing are we to make mistakes? To just try things a new way? How willing are we to look at all the yuck inside of our mind instead of running away? One teacher calls meditation practice one insult after another. (laughs) And it is, you know, you see the mind everywhere, you see it just have a lot of ugly thoughts and a lot of stupid thoughts. 
and a lot of reactions and the body just rebelling when you want it to do a certain thing. We get so caught up, though, in the image of what we'd like to be, either to others or to ourselves, and it's just a lot of extra pressure on us. There's a a story about a party that was given for a Zen master who came to America, and there were many other Zen masters who were invited just to celebrate his coming. And someone at the party was talking about it later and said, some of these masters were just so precise. They were just oozing mindfulness. And some of them were just kind of hanging out casually like anyone else. And some of them were just wildly dancing around and having a grand time. And they were all Zen masters. Who was the real Zen master? There's no one way to be. And the point of that is to just find out who we are. We're this perfect expression of life with all of our imperfections, just like a flower or a tree or an animal. We just kind of think that we ought to have it all together. The thing that gets in the way of our letting ourselves just be who we are is the fact that we buy into all the thoughts that come through and we identify with them and we see, gee, I must be terrible for having that thought or I must be wonderful for having that one. And as the, the bait comes by with the hook, we keep on biting and then looking afterwards and saying, oh boy, how did I get caught in that one again? And one way to develop some forgiveness for that tendency is to realize how deep the conditioning is that we're trying to extricate ourselves from. How deep it is to react with fear or aversion or grasping. On one retreat, and I've shared this with some people, on one retreat, one longer retreat, I was doing some very slow walking. I had been sitting for a couple of months and just going very, very slowly. I like to, to go at that slow, slow, slow pace when I'm, when I'm practicing, just because that's my style. This one particular day, I was in the gym in the meditation center in Massachusetts and there was nobody around. So I decided to see how slowly I could go. I just play a game. Okay, how slow, how long could it take to go from one side of the gym to the other? And while I was in the middle of this exercise, somebody came into the gym who had just arrived at the meditation center because there was a two-week retreat that was starting and you can kind of feel someone's energy as they just come. And I knew I'd look pretty strange to this person, but I wasn't going to change my my trip. And sure enough, after about two minutes of doing this super slow meditation with this other person around, she just bolted from the room, could feel the frustration. And as she walked through my, past my field of vision, 
the thought arose in me, wow, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. (laughs) And perhaps because I was a bit more present and concentrated than I usually am, the thought didn't go by unnoticed. It registered really deeply. And what also registered was how familiar that thought was. Like I had an experience that I had had it millions of times before. And it was devastating from that super slow walking, just this whole level of competition and ego and image. It was like I opened up a trap door to just disgusting layers of (laughs) patterns in mind. And I, from the walking, I started doing pacing meditation. I just was going back and forth in the gym. How can I get out of this mind? How can I do it? And after a few minutes of that, fortunately, all I could do was just say, it's so deep. It's so deeply ingrained what I'm trying to do. What can I do but just have some compassion for this predicament that I'm stuck in? And it really was a a tremendous opening, a lot more valuable than doing the slow walking exercise. Because I got a sense that it wasn't just my problem, that there was something that we all carry around, those tendencies of trying to gain approval or impress or some, some way project an image. And as we can have some compassion for that conditioning, we can... Let the thoughts come in without grasping onto them or feeling we have to do something to get rid of them. They come and they go. The more we can learn to do that, forgive ourselves for that, those patterns in this mind and this body, the more then we're able to start to forgive others. And so this practice isn't just for ourselves. It's like, this is a laboratory, as I was saying in some of the groups today. This is the laboratory. You're given a mind and a body to explore. Not just because it's yours, but just to understand the way the mind and body work and what it means to be alive in this place. So there can be more of a sense of connection with other minds and bodies and see that it's really not just my mind, it's the mind. It's the nature of mind. And so forgiving ourselves starts to develop a sense of forgiving others. On another level, there's a forgiveness, what I call forgiving the Dharma, which might sound kind of strange if you've been doing a lot of Dharma practice. As I said the first night, the word Dharma means reality, the way things are. And in my mind, I kind of translate the concept as just the perfection of the universe, how it's all somehow amazingly unfolding in perfect order beyond my comprehension, but there seems to be some interrelatedness to the whole show. So when I say forgiving the Dharma... It might sound a little strange, but that's what we're not doing when we're complaining 
and saying, why does this have to be this way? Why does my knee have to hurt? Why does this person have to feel this way in my life towards me? Why does this person have to, have to die? Why do I have to get sick? And that unwillingness to see what's here and accept it and work with it creates a tremendous problem. And one teacher put it, if there's a conflict between you and the Dharma, chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma. <laughs> but somehow we think, well, I'd be doing a better job. You know, if I, if I had my way, there wouldn't be any suffering. It's not for us to, to say because this is the way things are and somehow there's some grander scheme that our limited minds can comprehend. <clears throat> By forgiving the Dharma, really I mean letting go of control of how we think things should be and rather to see each situation as a workable one and to open up to it, to see what the lesson is there to learn. Rather than waiting for the good stuff to come, okay, where is the, the, the growth in this moment? Dealing with pain, for instance. This is something that came up a lot in the groups and should normally come up or usually comes up on the second day. All right? What's your reaction to it? Is it, why is this happening now? Why is this getting in the way of the, the meditation? When really, it is the meditation. That's what's happening. Tomorrow, probably, or soon into the retreat, we'll be working with sensations as, as they arise in the body and the instructions will be a bit more detailed. But for now, when there's the pain in the shoulder or the knee or wherever it is in, in your body, What's your relationship to it? Is it anger? Or can there be a sense of forgiveness and even appreciation for the fact that those muscles have been trying their best to serve you? Is there contraction around it? Some ways that might be helpful to work with the pain. Notice if your attitude towards it is real tight and trying to run away. And if it is, to somehow have a softer mindset towards it. Okay, here it is. Let me start to just touch it with a gentle awareness. Let me see what this is all about. Is the rest of your body tight? Because typically the response is, "Uh uh-oh, here's this pain. I'd better protect myself. And you become one big knot. And so to keep the rest of your body soft and your mind soft around it. Perhaps if you're getting very tight and cut off, to take a few deeper breaths as a way to channel the energy. And then to explore what those sensations are about. Not trying to change them, but just a willingness to investigate. Your mind doesn't wander very much when you're lost, when you're in pain. Rather, when you're lost in thought and there's not much happening, then you can space out. But here's this strong sensation, okay, Finally, I'm here. Now, what's your relationship to it? Looking at at it very carefully. The image that I use is kind of like Sherlock Holmes with a a magnifying glass, just kind of investigating, oh, here's some 
throbbing, here's some pulsing, here's tingling, the energy is moving around, radiating out. Just to notice all the different aspects that comprise this thing we call pain. And to forgive it, to be real soft around it. Then after a while, coming back to the breath, so you don't get lost for too long in it, because it's easy to. And then staying with the breath until it calls you away again very, very strongly. And then again, just touching it each time with some non-judging awareness, you start to have a different kind of relationship to it. So, forgiveness. That's one of the first steps to this opening. A few others that I'll, I'll mention briefly. The quality of patience is really essential in this practice. And it's much related to some of the things that I've been saying. But just to highlight it for a moment, the kind of patience that I'm talking about isn't waiting for the good stuff to come. and just kind of gritting your teeth and sooner or later these guys say that things change and I'll be here and ready for it to change. It doesn't work so well that way. You can't wait for the bad stuff to go for the, in order for the good stuff to, to come because there's that subtle aversion to it while it's here that just feeds it. And so the patience that's being talked about is a kind of allowing, a kind of spaciousness that gives permission for this experience to be here. And in that way, can start to explore and investigate and learn from the situations. On the second day of retreat, the thought arises very often, you know, or in, in many people's minds, how can I last through another eight days of this? God, it's so hard now, I'll never make it. Remember the first time I did a, a three-month retreat, by the third day, I was saying, 11 weeks, three days, eight hours, and 20 minutes to go. Never. I'll never do it. Fortunately, one of the teachers, I think it was Jack, gave a talk on patience that night. And it was really it was a good talk. I'm just saying, when you see yourself toppling forward, just use it as a signal to come back and say, what's happening now? You can't speed up time. You know, we all know that as we try to make it go faster, it's just that much more frustrating. So instead, when you see this toppling, just to settle back, okay, what's happening now? And time has a way of moving in its own proper pace. And as you can settle into the moment, you'll see very soon the thoughts will start to be, oh gee, only another four more days to go. I'd better make the most of this time. So you can play little tricks or ways of dealing with the time. In the meditation, sometimes I've said, towards the end of the sitting, start the meditation right now. Because it's so easy to get into this idea of, Oh, I've done it for 40 minutes, another 20, how can I last? And that just gets us more involved in this self-pity. It's very difficult. 
If instead you can just let go of the past and just make it the beginning of a 20-minute sit, oh, 20 minutes to be here, let me really be present, and just flip around that relationship to time. So that patience, it's the patience that knows that whatever is here is going to pass and while it's here, let me make use of it. Let me really fully experience what's here because it's not going to come again. So how can I grow from this? Forgiveness, patience, another quality that's very helpful in this opening is having a sense of humor. You know, when I said before that meditation is one insult after another, kind of started to get maybe a, just a taste of that laughing at this whole ordeal that you might be going through. If you're able to have some kind of lightness around the process, it just creates some space, some cosmic humor. Here we are in this mind and body. How do we, how do we relate to it? This is not only about suffering. The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. And as a matter of fact, one of the factors of enlightenment is joy, rapture. So, not to think that you're just doomed to gloom while you're here. In fact, it's a very important quality to keep in mind as you're putting in the sincere effort to be present, to keep it light. Because mindfulness isn't straining, it's not struggling, it's a very light touch. And if you're trying to pounce on the breath, it just creates a lot of rigidity. And so you want to have that ease about you. Especially sense of humor around the judging mind, because that's the thing that people start to get a clue is just so vast. If you haven't looked at it before, it's very humbling. And if you're starting to notice the judging mind with a lot of judgment, it just compounds the situation. Oh, judging again. You're being mindful? Oh, yeah. Oh, another judgment. If you use the labeling, it's very helpful to be soft with the label judging. It's like you're making nice to a baby, you know, caressing, oh, judging, judging. So you're not adding more extra energy and frustration on top of it. been reading uh, the Vietnamese uh, meditation teacher's book. Uh, this, this teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, has a beautiful book called uh, The Miracle of Being Awake. And he talks about practicing with a half smile, quite literally a half smile. And I've done it in my own practice when things are getting very tight, to just make myself smile. Not to avoid the stuff, but just realizing that I'm so locked up in it, there's no way I can get a handle on it. And I'll usually go through this dialogue. All right, you said you'd smile. But I don't want to smile. You know, I just you want to feel rotten and angry. But you said you'd smile. All right, I'd smile, I'll smile. And I kind of curl up my mouth and it's, you know. 
dumb expression. Sometimes I look in the mirror, that really does it. And in just a moment, the whole melodrama starts to dissolve. You might sit with a half smile or walk with a half smile. One thing that humor does is it takes us out of the content of what's going on. Why is this happening? I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. To see the process of how absurd this whole dance is. And so if you can remember to keep that lightness, that sense of humor, it's really going to be helpful. So, a willingness to be here, a quality of forgiveness, a patience around experience, and a sense of humor, just as a way to open up to our experience so we can see more clearly and really penetrate into the nature of things so that there can be some understanding and compassion and open-heartedness that starts to develop out of that. And as we can learn to open up to experience, what we're really training ourselves to do is to live our lives more fully, more genuinely, so we can experience all of life and not just fragmenting life into the good stuff and then the bad stuff and not running away from the unpleasant to get to the good. I was mentioning in in some of the groups today something that's been very helpful to me on the retreat. It doesn't really matter what's happening. It's more your relationship to what's happening that's really the key. And if you can have that open relationship to experience, whether it's opening and letting the good pass, the pleasant pass, or opening and letting the unpleasant in to develop more patience and understanding, then all of our life counts. And as we can cultivate that attitude, then there's a real possibility of discovering what it means to be alive. And instead of the practice being this struggle and this hardship, it becomes an adventure. That's what we're doing. We're on an adventure, discovering what it means to be alive. It's a wonderful adventure, not without its difficulties, but very well worth the trip. here and perhaps if there are questions or comments about the talk or about the practice. And if someone could turn that light on in the back, it would be easier to see people's hands.
you got it. It's a very nice night to go walking. Yeah. Why not to write? <clears throat> it's wrong to write. <laughs> well, The practice is one of seeing things as they present themselves and then just letting go. And if we're busy holding on to experience, it doesn't allow for the present to be here. We're busy in the past. And there can be a real tendency of mind to try to hold on to our insights when really one of the most powerful insights is that of letting go. We don't need to stuff our minds up with more things. As we let go, there's the allowing for more understanding to occur. So just as a part, a way to discipline ourselves not to hold on. Anything else coming up from the day's practice? It's very common to have strong emotions come up. One way I think of the practice is it's like you're taking the lid off of all the stuff that you usually distract yourself from. And when strong emotions come up, as the retreat goes on, they'll be incorporated into the meditation as objects of awareness. Right now, when they come up, when they overwhelm your experience so that there's no way you can be with the breath, to just turn your attention to the emotion and let yourself feel the energy behind it. Rather than getting lost in the content of what it is that's triggering it off, this is an opportunity to explore this pattern, whether it's fear or anger or sadness or whatever. One useful way to work with emotions is to feel the sensations in your body. Because emotions express themselves as words in the mind, a mood in the mind, a flavor 
and also sensations in the body. Usually all of them are happening at the same time. And if you try to fight it on the word level, it's going to be a problem because you're just battling words with more words. You know, why did she do this? Or how do I get rid of this emotion? Or what do I do now? I find it helpful to ground myself in the body sensations, feeling the energy, exploring like I was talking about with pain, just noticing what's happening. And also then starting to feel the quality in the mind, whether it's dark or heavy or uh, agitated or what. And being with that energy, opening up to it, and then after a while coming back to the breath and getting somewhat grounded, and as the emotion calls you away again and is very strong, going back and forth like that. The key to that process, though, is first giving permission for that energy to be here. Because if you're trying to get rid of it, it's going to be a problem. And so there's a willingness, like I said at the beginning of the talk, okay, here's fear. Let me explore it. Let me understand it. Let me just touch it with awareness. And each time you do it that way, it's like you're decharging the power that it has over you. And maybe the 500th time or the 10,000th time, it's, oh, there's that one again. You know, tape number 17, panic. You know. And it's okay. You know. And you don't have to be lost in it because you've gotten familiar enough with it to not be afraid of it. Even being afraid, of, not being afraid of fear. There can be fear there and it can be okay. And so just to open up to it that way. If it happens on its own, sometimes it'll be a natural release. You know, sometimes it'll be like you're a pressure cooker and it'll have its way of releasing, either crying or laughing. And if that happens, fine. If you've got some choice in the matter, though, rather than just expressing it, when you open up in that way and release it, willfully, what you also do is you dissipate the energy that the practice has uh, helped develop. And so it scatters, disperses the energy. Rather than do that, use the energy that's here to penetrate, to explore what that's all about. So you're not releasing it, but you're investigating it. And as you're getting more new to Vipassana practice. And the other half are people who've done one or a number of retreats before. For the first talks in this retreat, we'll go over some of the basics of practice and then perhaps can evolve from there. In his teaching, the Buddha often said that he was concerned with only one thing, with a practical path to human happiness or freedom or liberation. And in undertaking the journey of practice which we have gathered together for, for this journey he gave a map in the very first talk of his teaching. In a way, as we come to this place for 10 days, 
It's as if we create a temporary monastery or nunnery. We come together and much like the very best centers, meditation centers and monasteries that still exist in Asia, live in a simple way in silence and really undertake this systematic training of the mind and the heart. So let's look at this map. Here we find ourselves together and if we observe it from the outside, it's pretty peculiar. I often speculate what the postman who comes to Mental Physics Institute or the refrigerator repairman or something must think. Because if you look at it, there are all these people walking very slowly as if they're quite depressed, not looking around, kind of like zombies or people who've been over-medicated in a bad state hospital. (laughs) And then they sit down to eat and they're so depressed they can't even look up and look around. They eat very slowly. They're lucky if they eat at all. So it looks from the outside, from the exterior, quite bizarre, I suppose you've noticed. Now inside, in some ways, it's even more difficult. I think even after one day of intensive practice, you've probably noticed that what we are teaching here is not what might be called a bliss trip. Um, Although, in fact, there are times when bliss arises. So since it's hard, and people face their restlessness or boredom or physical pain and so forth, people may have forgotten already why they came to the retreat. What are you doing here? In fact, some of you may be planning your escape. (laughs) So let's consider the journey that we are undertaking together for these 10 days um, using the guide of the Eightfold Path, which is this map of practice taught by the Buddha. The first step of the Eightfold Path is called right understanding. Right understanding begins with the kind of question of what are we practicing for? Why are you here? People come for different reasons. But in a deep way, it asks of our heart and our being, what do we want to do with our life? If we look at the world candidly, It is a realm governed predominantly by greed, hatred, and delusion, by prejudice, fear, anger, by 50,000 armed nuclear missiles that can kill a million people or more apiece, by wars in many, many countries, by starvation. There's one need only pick up Newsweek or Time or uh, find a newspaper and read through it and and say that there's trouble, that it's a mess. And there are beautiful aspects to our planet, but um, much of what human beings have done is not at the present time so beautiful. There's a lot of suffering. And it's not just the suffering out there of these events of war and famine and things that are governed by greed and hatred and delusion and prejudice. If we look even in our own lives and in our own very 
wealthy country, we can also see a kind of sorrow, busyness, constant reactions, fear, grieving, desires tossing us to and fro, at times anyway. Following some path or career or whatever. So right understanding asks you to look inside and see what do you treasure? What do you value for your life? What's really important to you? It's a short dance. It's a very short dance. And a beautiful one. I don't know if you saw the nearly full moon with the clouds out on the desert tonight. It's really marvelous. What would you like to do with this dance? Right understanding, if we look in a way, sees that there is suffering in the world around us and some difficulty in most of our lives and that we all would like happiness. We do what we can to be happy. But yet there's this unsatisfactoriness. And so what we come to practice from is some sense, some inkling, some taste, some knowing that there's a potential to live in a different way, to live with a greater strength of heart, to live more lovingly, to live with more awareness and more consciousness in our lives. So right understanding is a sense that it need not stay this way, that we can transform our lives. And the second part of this understanding is that it doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't come down from the sky while you're walking somewhere all by itself, at least very, very rarely. And so we come as well together sharing a belief in karma, even if you don't know that yet. The belief in karma simply means seeing that there's cause and effect in the world, that what we do and how we are creates our future. If we cultivate anger and uh, rage, then after a while that becomes our way. A situation arises and we get angry. If we cultivate awareness or loving kindness, that will become our way and will change the world that we associate with. So to see that it doesn't happen by accident, but by a systematic development or training. Someone asked a wonderful friend and Vipassana teacher, Ruth Dennison, at one point, if she could explain karma in a very simple way for them. She said, certainly, karma means you don't get away with nothing means that what you do and how you act and how you attend and work in your heart and mind creates how your life will be. So this is the first right understanding, the first step. Seeing that there's suffering in the world and also sensing a potential for greater love, greater compassion, and greater clarity or balance, wisdom. And seeing as well that it's not going to happen all by itself, that it requires our systematic um, opening or training, working with it. The second step of the Eightfold Path is called right attitude or right aspiration. And it builds on this first understanding. Right attitude also has two parts. The first is a sense or an attitude of openness of mind. Being willing in our spiritual practice, in our time here, to learn about our situation and ourselves with a loving and open quality. So that you sit here 
And your purpose is not to judge it or evaluate it or wrestle with it as much as it is more gently to pay attention, to bring the mind back, to learn to see in a clearer way. And what this requires is that we let go of our expectations. You may have sat before, you may never have sat. No matter what you think, the retreat will be a little different or a lot different. And life is like that, actually. It's always going to be a little different than you imagine. And so this right attitude is a willingness to sit and walk and say, all right, what's going to happen? And to see it as it comes rather than to manipulate or direct it. That's a very loving quality of mind to do that, to accept it as it comes. The second part is a quality of renunciation, a willingness for this time at least to not just follow our habits and desires. You sit and you feel like moving a lot or getting up and you just sit anyway. Or you walk and sleepiness comes or restlessness comes and you just keep walking. And you let yourself be with your experience rather than immediately going and taking a nap or uh, lying down or kind of um, taking some time off. It's a willingness in a gentle way to stay with one's experience and not follow our habit, but to experiment, to study with it. In India, there's a saying that when a pickpocket meets a saint, sees only the saint's pockets. And our desires affect what we see, what we want will limit our vision. If you're hungry and you drive down the road in Yucca Valley, what do you see? You see Bob's Big Boy, you see Reflections Restaurant, there's a nice Thai restaurant there. You don't see shoe stores. You probably don't even see the, the mountains or the weather. You see food. You know, if you're a barber and you come into this room, most likely what you'll see is who needs a haircut. What you're familiar with and what you want creates your perception. So right attitude is an openness to see actually what's here without trying to make it different. And a willingness to stay with it with a certain uh, renunciation or stick to itness. Now these together may evoke in you or at least can evoke in one an understanding that this is a very deep process, that this journey of opening or awakening is really going to transform or can our whole way of being in the world. And it's nourishing and very significant and also very difficult. There's a beautiful letter that I read often from George Wald, a Nobel Prize winner at Harvard. There was some debate a couple of years ago about a sperm bank for Nobel Prize winners. And an irate feminist wrote in to the paper and said, Nobel Prize winners, sperm bank, there should be an egg bank. Not just men, but women. And he wrote back and said he understood that and certainly there could be an egg bank. Um, Technically it was difficult, but not as hard as the other kinds of breeder reactors. But think of a man so vain as to insist on getting a superior egg from an egg bank. Then he has to fertilize it. And when it's fertilized, where does he go with it? To his wife? Here, dear, you can hear him saying, I just got the superior egg from an egg bank and just fertilized it myself. Will you take care of it? I've got eggs of my own to worry about, she answers. You know what you can do with your superior egg. 
go rent a womb, and while you're at it, you better rent a room, too. You see, he says, it just won't work. For the truth is, what one really needs is not Nobel laureates, but love. How do you think one gets to be a Nobel laureate? Wanting love, that's how. Wanting it so bad one works all the time and ends up a Nobel laureate. It's a consolation prize. (laughs) What matters is love. Forget sperm banks and egg banks. Banks and love are incompatible. If you don't know that, you don't know bankers. So just practice loving. Love a Russian. You'd be surprised how easy it is and how it will brighten your morning. Love Wales, Iraqis, Iranians, Palestinians, Vietnamese, not just here but everywhere. Then when you get very good, you can try working with the politicians in our nation's capital. It's a very beautiful thing. Even the Nobel Prize, a consolation prize. What do we value? What do we really treasure in life? I think sometimes, as I've seen people who come near death, The kind of questions that we ask when we come close to dying, come to the end of our life, are not very complicated ones, and they're not very many. They may be, did I live fully? Did I really do it and engage? And maybe even more fundamentally, did I love well? Not how much we made or did or created, but did I love well? So we start this journey with this understanding of a potential of our heart and our mind to open and see more clearly and seeing that it requires a systematic training. Realizing that to undertake it, the attitudes that are helpful are a, an openness of mind to see what we find rather than pre-programming it and a willingness to work some. Now the next three steps of the Eightfold Path talk about how to live one's life as a foundation, as a support for spiritual practice. They're called virtue. Spiritual practice isn't just sitting with your legs crossed and your eyes closed, no matter what happens. It really is how we drive and how we uh, relate to our family and our work and so forth. So the next step is called right speech. And again, it asks you a question. How do you use the energy of your speech? We talk a lot, you probably have noticed in our lives. And much of it is on automatic pilot. We talk, la 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 la. And there is a possibility to use speech to gossip and just talk idly, or to wake up to be more conscious. Right? Speech says, pay attention and begin to see if you can use your speech more creatively. Its meaning is first to speak honestly, and secondly, that is first to say that which is true, and secondly, to pay attention to say that which is helpful, which is kind, which comes from the heart. Those are the two two criteria for right speech, not gossip or undermining or things. That which is true and which is helpful. Because sometimes we can say that which is true as a kind of brutal honesty, and it's not helpful at all. To say it in due season. There's a story of a master once who was healing a child that was ill and he did it by repeating some words and then gave the child back to the parent saying, now he will be well. Well, someone who didn't believe in this spiritual stuff saw him and said, how can it be possible that by these few words spoken anyone could be healed? From this mild master, an angry answer was 
rarely expected, but this time he turned to the man and said loudly, you understand nothing about it. You're a total fool. The man was very much offended. His face was red. He was angry and hot. Then the master said, when a word has the power to make you hot and angry, why should not another word have the power to heal? Our words are very powerful. So right speech is really beginning to take our speech and work with it in a conscious and careful way. In terms of gossip, Joseph, friend and teacher, a person who I teach with, did an experiment at one point. He decided to go a month without speaking about any third parties, people who weren't present that he knew. And he said an amazing thing happened on taking that resolve, just working with right speech, playing with it, with awareness. He said 95 or 90% of his speech was eliminated. So you can really look at how you use words. Then the next two steps of the Eightfold Path are right action and right livelihood. And like right speech, they all are what is conducive to happiness and quietness of mind. If you speak truthfully, or if you know people who are honest, there's a kind of aura of stillness or peace around that honesty. It gets very complicated when you alter the truth. Right action, the next step, again is a source for our happiness. It's the precepts last night of not killing, not stealing, and not committing sexual misconduct. To not kill, again, <clears throat> as Jamie said, is to cultivate a reverence and a caring for life. All the kinds of life. You notice even little things don't very much like to be killed. Like us, they all want to live. <clears throat> and a way to make ourselves happier is to come into a relationship with the world around where we honor that, we honor life, and we make an effort not to kill or harm beings. It's easy to write off in our culture. There's a cartoon one hunting season in The New Yorker that showed two deer on a hillside and the hunters down below with their guns. Deer were talking to one another. One deer said to the other, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds? And it's easy to kind of excuse it and say, there are too many deer here. I have not seen too many deer around. I've seen too many something, but it doesn't look like deer. So to have reverence, it also means to see that we are interconnected, you know, that we need spiders and bees and earthworms, that your life depends on earthworms and bees and spiders. The spiders keep the insect population in check and the bees pollinate much of the food crop and the flowers and the plants that turn carbon dioxide back into oxygen and keep the biosphere working and the earthworms aerate the soil and allow things to grow. You and the earthworms are one and the bees and the spiders and we're really interconnected in this web of life. So to begin to take care, similarly with not stealing, On one side it says don't take that which isn't given, but on the creative, the positive side, it says develop a sensitivity for this planet that we share, which is limited in resources, to take care with what we use, to not be too picky about it, to use what's appropriate, and to be aware that we share this retreat center and this desert and this planet. It talks about also cultivating a spirit of 
giving or generosity. That if you want to be happy, you can <coughs> learn a tremendous, tremendous force of happiness. You can learn to develop it through practicing giving. Love, time, money, energy. It really makes people happy. To not kill, to not steal, to not commit sexual misconduct. That's a good one for <clears throat> modern American culture and for California. This again asks us to become conscious of this powerful force of sexuality. It can be associated on one hand with greed and compulsion and uh, be exploitive, or it can be associated with love, with intimacy, with tenderness, with caring. Don't act sexually in ways that bring hurt to another person or a second or third party. You can do it if you like, but it makes you and the world around you unhappy. So it says, don't do that if you want to be happy. And on the other hand, value the energy. And if you act sexually, if you're not celibate, then try to bring a caring and a consciousness to it, to use it as another aspect of your practice. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right livelihood, again, talks about integrating our work into our spiritual practice. All these things, our speech, our words, our sexual life, caring for other beings, right livelihood, all the parts. It asks you again, how do you relate to your work? Is it something that you just get through in order to get money to do something else nice, like come on retreats? Maybe that's not so nice today, but some days it's nice, you'll see. Or have you discovered some way of connecting with your work as a kind of service or of using it even as a practice of awareness or mindfulness. I even think one could work on an assembly line and I've done it, but it was before I did much meditation practice and make it a kind of meditation. Not to say that I recommend it particularly, but we can begin to use our livelihood in these two ways. First, to try and pay attention and make those hours and that work that we do more conscious, to be more mindful, to be more aware, to be more present. And secondly, to see it in the spirit of service, that all kinds of work are necessary. Printers and plumbers and farmers and teachers and um, nurses and uh, barbers, hairdressers, all of these things. I'd much rather live in San Francisco and have there be no meditation teachers than no plumbers. Much more important in a certain way. But they're all interconnected. All of our work supports the social fabric. So it says in Right Livelihood to choose a livelihood that doesn't harm people, to avoid the ones that deal with drugs or weapons or things like that. But then that which you pick, to work with it as a part of your meditation, your spiritual practice. There's a Zen master who's a friend named Sansanim, a Korean master, who wanted to come to America as a younger Zen master. And he already had some fame in Korea and some big temples and many disciples. He came and gave some talks and decided to stay here and learn our ways and teach in the West. And so his last stop off was at Brown University and he got an apartment in Providence and he got a job working in a laundromat. And he was a little, little stocky guy with 
gray robes and a shaven head. And he'd go down the laundromat and wash the floors and put quarters in the machines that needed change and fix the washing machines. And gradually people came into the laundromat, especially students, and they said, huh, there's this very strange, interesting man down there. What are you? He said, I Zen monk. He didn't speak very good English at that point. Zen? So they became interested. He said, you, you Zen, you interested? So then he brought them up to his apartment and he would teach people to sit in Zen meditation. Then he'd go back and kind of wash the floors in the laundromat while they were sitting. And gradually over a year or two, he evolved and he had some people live with him and he would work and support the apartment and teach them. Now he has about 15 or 20 meditation centers. This is 10 years later and a whole uh, very large and and beautiful meditation uh, um, scene. But what was lovely to see is here's a very famous Zen master just working in the laundromat and waiting, using that opportunity as his practice. So right speech, right action, right livelihood, all of these are basis for happiness, for using our speech, using our work, using our action as a way to start to become more conscious, to live in a caring and mindful way. And they make the heart quiet and open the heart and give a certain strength or integrity to our mind and our heart that allows the voyage to go, our spiritual life to develop. And the interesting thing you look is that they don't tell you how to live. They don't say what job you should have or what you should say. They simply say, pay attention to your speech, to your work, to your sexuality, and let that too be in the sphere of your practice. Okay, now we come to the last three parts of the Eightfold Path. And they have to do with formal meditation. There was right understanding that we have this potential of greater love and wisdom that can be awakened through training. Right attitude of openness and uh, willingness to work with things. Then the foundation of right speech and action and livelihood. Now the last three parts. Here we come and we sit down for a day And what do you see? You try to watch the breath. You say to your mind, please do this very simple thing for me. Just pay attention to the breath. Does it listen? No way. If you look inside, it's for some people, it's just mildly busy. For many people, it's a wreckage in there. (laughs) In fact, the first insight that the Tibetans described This is insight meditation. So you've actually had the first insight already. It's called seeing the waterfall. It's when you close your eyes and you try to do a simple thing like be aware of the breath and you see how many times the mind goes off to the past and the future, liking and disliking and judging and planning and telling people what the retreat was like after you get out of it, (laughs) even though you haven't finished the first day. So you come and you sit and first maybe you get a little sleepy because after all it's so quiet in here and what does your mind think? Gee, it's so quiet, it must be bedtime. It puts itself to sleep. <laughs> then, you know, you sleep for a while and you kind of wake up and say, Oh, I'm meditating. And it gets restless and starts thinking for a while again. It gets tired and it goes back to sleep. And you have this kind of alternation in the beginning of sleep and restlessness. Or you see the mind, another image is of a poorly trained puppy, not really housebroken yet, you know, kind of wandering around and pooping on everything. <laughs> 
So how do we work with this? It's very strong conditioning. You, you ask it to settle down, to pay attention, to be quiet. At first, in a simple way, how can we work with this very forceful conditioning and tendency of mind to be lost in past, future, and thought? My teacher, Ajahn Chah, I remember someone asked him, isn't meditation like self-hypnosis? And he replied, actually, it's more like de-hypnosis. We're already kind of on automatic pilot. And it's a waking up. The secret waits for the eyes, the secret waits for the insight of eyes unclouded by longing, it says in the Tao. Those who are bound by longing see only the outer form. So what we have to do is not add more to it. There's plenty in there already. But stop, not to react so much, but have what Zen Master Suzuki Roshi called the general house cleaning of the mind. To sit down and not try to change it so much as let it come to rest. This is a process of opening up, of stilling the mind and the heart. And there are three aspects of the Eightfold Path that speak to this directly. Right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. What is right effort? Right effort is a key thing in our practice. First of all, it is the effort to pay attention. It's not the effort to make some special thing happen, but it's the effort to be here in the moment and see what's going on. For now with the breath and as we go on to open the meditation later, the body and the mind and the heart and so forth. It's the effort to be aware, to be conscious. And it takes practice. It's like learning piano. You don't learn it in a day or even a week. If you want to play piano well, you put in a lot of hours over months or years, and then you can play in a jazz club or in an orchestra or a solo, however you like. Here we take a quiet place and we start to learn to play piano inside. This finger goes here and the attention goes on the breath and there's the in or the rising, the out or the falling. Very systematic way. The effort to pay attention. Now it has two other meanings as well. Right effort also points to the effort to find balance, the way to find balance. And what balance means is that you'll notice sometimes that you try very hard, you know, I'll catch that next breath if it kills me, and you get very tense. And it will, you know, if you do it long enough. So when you notice that you're very tight, you want to soften, let your body be a little softer, and feel the breath, touch it with your awareness, sense it, like running your finger again along the carpet, but not to control it. Try to let it go, just to feel it. On the other hand, other moments you may discover that you're so relaxed and sleepy and the mind is just going off to Las Vegas and the moon and Hawaii and the past and the future. And then you wake up and you say, oh yeah, not enough effort. There is no place that you'll find and can just stay there. It's much more like riding a bicycle. Right effort is this movement or this balance, discovering if you're too relaxed to put in a little more effort to come back, discovering if you're tense to soften and ease and just pay attention without a tightness. So right effort is the effort to be aware and the effort to find this balance and also to somehow in yourself to encourage the development of calm and mindfulness. That is to support those states when they arise and not play around and go off thinking about things if you have a choice about it. When the thoughts come and they say, you know, 
Geraldine or whatever, they tap you on the shoulder and say, let's think about this, it's very interesting. And you see that's a very seductive thought and you say, no thank you. You know, I'm here doing something else. And you don't have to be angry at it, you just let it go and come back again and say, here we are with the breath. So effort, the effort to pay attention and to find a, a sense of inner balance. Now, right mindfulness, right concentration, they really come together, developed as a pair in the meditation. Right concentration, which is what we've started to develop today using the breath, is training the mind and the heart, our attention, to be steady like a candle flame in a windless place. Normally, if we pay attention to our minds, you probably noticed today, it will wander all over the map. With this kind of wandering filled with thought, lost in chains of associations, it's very difficult to see very deeply into how our mind works, into our body and how it works, through intuition, through non-thinking ways, to open to deeper levels of ourselves. So one of the things that's required in any method of spiritual practice is a collecting or a settling of the mind with concentration. And to do this, to make the mind steady, to focus it, is similar to the grinding of a lens. If you have a lens that's well ground, you can use it as a microscope, and we will during this retreat, and see all the very subtle energies and mental states and various aspects of our being in a way that's not apparent to us without concentration. You can also use it as a telescope. You can use the lens of concentration to look into the mind and see all kinds of realms of experience that aren't available without being very present. So it's a very powerful thing. We start in a mundane way. We begin by training the puppy. You say, stay on the breath, and what does the puppy do? Gets up, flops around, it runs over, pick it up gently, put it back in the corner, stay. Gets up and it runs around again. Maybe a thousand times in a sitting. Stay. And it's the very gathering of our attention back each time that it's wandered, bringing it back, that starts to train the mind to be here in the present moment and to be concentrated. Take some practice. The second element of this training is the training of mindfulness. Concentration is a steadiness or a collectedness where the mind doesn't wander but can see very deeply. And mindfulness is the quality of noticing what is happening, of seeing it clearly without resisting it, without grasping it, without identifying with it, without saying this is me or mine or relating to it from some place of judgment or ownership. Mindfulness means clear seeing. It's a balanced state of mind, observing things as they are. And this is our task, the cultivation through right effort of awareness or mindfulness and concentration to see things in each moment, starting with the breath and the walking meditation and then moving along. Through that, as these get strengthened, we can begin to see more and more clearly what is actually true 
in our experience. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, the old kind of Sufi fool and wise man and sage and comedian rolled into one. And he opened a question booth in the market one day and put out a sign kind of like Lucy's in, uh, in Peanuts. It said, two questions, five gold dinars, which was really a lot of money, these very heavy big gold coins. Almost no one could afford it and they wondered whether he had anything worthwhile to say anyway because he's sort of a trickster. But finally some relatively rich man says, well, all right, I'll try it. And he went up and he put his five big gold coins there. And he looked at Nasruddin and he said, isn't five gold dinars awfully expensive for just two questions? And Nasruddin said, yes, and what's your second question? (laughs) You can't find the answers to your spiritual life fundamentally through questioning other people. You'll find that it's a very costly process and in the end you'll lose a lot of your investment. The answers to what is the nature of our hearts and our minds, how can we live more happily or more peacefully, all of these kinds of things come through the process of our own observation, which is what mindfulness speaks to. Now, it can be trained in a very precise way. When we trained in the Burmese tradition, the opening instructions would describe how one can pay attention when taking a drink at the water fountain, being aware of Shifting the weight, standing up, feeling all the movements of the body, lifting, moving, placing slowly to the water fountain. Seeing the water fountain, noting awareness of seeing. Then the desire arises to drink, feeling thirsty. So feel thirsty, thirsty, making a mental note, thirsty. Then intending to reach and being aware of reaching the arm, touching, touching the water fountain. It's cold, 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 noting the coldness pushing the button, bending over, coldness or wetness of the water, swallowing, swallowing, then releasing the button, lowering the arm, standing up, and making that whole activity, the very simple thing of going to take a drink of water, into a deep meditation. Because any place that we're very mindful begins to teach us. We can see how desire works and how... Uh, the mind and the body are related and how we get caught in things. So that out of mindfulness, the Eightfold Path circles back and what's developed then is right understanding again, only on a deeper level, born of our attention and concentration. And I don't want to tell you what you'll find. You'll have to see that for yourself. But I might suggest some things for you to look at as you investigate. You might look at the nature of change or impermanence. As you sit in this retreat, see if there is anything that you notice in your whole life experience as it passes through you over these days that does not change. Anything in the body, anything in the heart, anything in the mind that's still and doesn't change even for a moment. Look at that. And see if there's anything then that you can really hold on to any sensation, any feeling, any mood, any thought. Look at it. Study, if you like, at some point you may look into the nature of desire. See what it's like when there's wanting and yearning and how the different feelings work. And see what it's like at times, this will come just as you put your time in and sit, see what it's like when there are times that there isn't wanting, when there isn't yearning, 
when you're content. Just begin to study the nature of desire and wanting, nature of attachment, the nature of impermanence. And as you do and as you begin to listen inside, as things become more silent, more open, and believe me, it will take a number of days and quite a bit of hard work on your part, sitting and walking, for this opening and settling to take place, then there comes a possibility of touching much deeper things, what we deeply care about in our heart, those kind of spiritual understandings which can be learned or open to only in silence, the nature of desirelessness or what it's like when, when we become very, very still, what that peace is like, what our sense of ourself, our images of ourself, and what it's like when those become quiet, when the thought drops away and all of our, our sense of ourself starts to, starts to evaporate. And then you can begin to see in some way, in a deep fashion, that this cocoon of our separateness is really an illusion. But all this is for you to discover and explore in yourself. There's much of it. The Eightfold Path, right? Understanding, seeing, sensing our inner potential of greater love, greater wisdom and the opening of the heart and mind. Seeing that it takes some training built on a foundation of kindness and virtue that stills the mind and makes us live in a happy, harmonious way. And then beginning to train, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, to begin to look inside and to start to relate wisely with less grasping, to see it with clarity and openness. Retreats are a difficult time. They're very special. They're, they're really precious, especially in a culture like ours. And I don't know what the circumstances are for this retreat, but it is one of the quietest. The feeling in the room is very, very special. I kind of wonder at some points, hmm, is this the eye of the hurricane? Because you know, you sit and you see all these 170 other Buddhas sitting there and you're sitting quiet too, but you know inside, they all look like they're enlightened and you've got all your uh, stuff going on in the middle of it. But there's a truly a a special feeling in the group. It's lovely. Retreats are special and they're difficult. But in their very simplicity, we try to keep them very simple, there's nothing extra. And in their directness, they give us a possibility of seeing ourselves clearly. There's no distractions. Here you are, your own breath, your own body, your own mind, to see yourself and the nature of the world around you. And through this process, to learn to grow in fearlessness and openness and clarity, to open to all of the experience which arises. It's kind of like a no-frills flight, you know? It's not like those fancy first-class ones. They don't even serve dinner on this plane. You get uh, a little bit of fruit. But this, again, this very simplicity leaves you silence and space and yourself. And even though I speak of it as an eightfold path, in fact, all journeys are really pathless. It's not a way to follow with certain steps, but it's really a statement of a possibility of becoming conscious in all these domains of our life. And that's the beauty and the mystery of practice, is to discover our own path through our attention and our awareness, to find our own way and our own blossoming and flowering.
And I close by reading a, a nice poem from W.S. Merwin, which is about retreats, actually. It's called Exercise, or Practice. He says, first forget what time it is for an hour. Do it regularly every day. Then forget what day of the week it is and do this regularly for a week. Then forget what country you are in and practice doing it in company with others for a week and then do them together for a week with as few breaks as possible. Follow these by forgetting how to add or to subtract. It makes no difference. You can change them around after a week. Both will help you later to forget how to count. Forget how to count for a while starting with your own age, starting with how to count backwards, starting with even numbers, with Roman numerals, starting with fractions, starting with the calendar and going on to the whole alphabet, forgetting it all until everything is immediate and continuous and whole again. The Dharma of liberation, the teachings that can lead us through our practice to become freer in our hearts and in our lives is wonderful. And to have this kind of time, 10 days together, is very precious to use, to share. So work with it carefully and well, not with tightness, but with a diligence to sit and walk. Try to do it, however, with this, with this sense of gentleness or softness. Put your time in and sit and walk and see with your own awareness what is actually here for you. As much as you do that, the retreat will be a really a deep one for you. Are there any questions, please, about anything that I've said, the Eightfold Path, or about practice or the instruction? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.